Hello and welcome to Listen Up People, a podcast of the USC Suzanne Dvork Peck School of Social Work. I'm Dr. T. Fitzgerald, clinical associate professor, and in this episode, the discussion pivots to gun violence. Not the mass shootings such as in Las Vegas, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, all horrific, all scary, all frustrating, especially when we're talking about the lack of progress in addressing the issue. But today we're going to talk about gun violence that happens every day in this country, sometimes reported often not. This is violence that's systematic in nature. Today we're going to talk about gun violence as it relates to color, as it relates to ethnicity, as it relates to socioeconomics. The topic of the Second Amendment has created more division and heated debate than health care, public education, or free speech. People such as George Washington even mention that firearms stand next to importance as the Constitution itself. I would like to welcome two great guests. Dr. Kim Finney is a clinical associate professor, retired U.S. Air Force officer, and board-certified clinical psychologist. And I would like to give a hearty welcome to Cody Silva, an officer in the Los Angeles Police Department, Newton Division, and a recent graduate of our Law Enforcement Advancement Development Program, or LEAD, which is a partnership between LAPD and the USC Suzanne DeVort Peck School of Social Work. Welcome and thank you all for being here. Thank you for having us. It's good to be here. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about, get the conversation going. How would you describe this problem that we call gun violence? And what do you think the many different facets of the problem entail? You know, as far as facets that are kind of concerned, I think there's just so many between, look at not only uh, not only the, the major media buzz, which is in regards to gun violence as far as, you know, guns in and of themselves, but also you look at uh, the communities as well as the, the family life. Um, parenting and you know as far as socioeconomics go and all those things that kind of all play a role into this. Okay Dr. Finn, how would you describe it? I, I, I somewhat agree that it is an epidemic. One of the things as I was listening to all Officer Silva is that my, my belief uh, based on my observations is that people are angry and the Profiles might be different if you're looking at race. But I think the single threat is that people are angry. Then you bring in economics, jobs. Then you add in the the idea of gangs and initiations. I mean, it's super complex. And I don't think there's one single answer. But I do think it has to do with anger as it is impacted by the environment. When you look at some of the profiles of individuals that have committed gun violence, it's usually within a certain circle of influence or community where the individual feels as if they have been done wrong on some level. And I see this community violence a little different than what we see in police violence. But we are a country, America, that's been built on violence. I mean, you you can trace it all the way back from the settlers. There was violence involved in that. I was in high school. I'll never forget. There was a documentary, the first documentary I'd ever seen, I think, that I wasn't forced to see as a kid. 
but it was called The History of Violence. It was in the HBO. And you can't find it unless you look on YouTube now. But it was still where they would say home box office, presented by home box office instead of HBO. But they chronicle the beginning of the country from um, genocide to the Wild West to the preoccupation or love of guns and how that was pushed to violence against children. All of this culminated around the idea of what you mentioned, that we were, unlike any other civilized country, we were born in violence and we act out in violent ways. Officer Silva Kip, Dr. Finney had mentioned this idea of anger. From a police officer's perspective, being on the ground, can you speak to that? Have you witnessed this sort of anger? And Yeah, okay. absolutely. In regards to anger, I think that's a great point uh, because it really uh, triggers a response out of most people. With that said, I, I say about six weeks ago now, and my partner and I uh, were talking to an individual, and he uh, just gotten out of prison for 30 years. He had committed a, yeah, armed robbery, and he grew up in South L.A. And this, this gentleman, we had a great conversation. We were talking about shootings in the area, and he had family and local gang, and I was kind of, talking with him as we normally do either to provide information or get intelligence in regards to what's going on with gang currently and we got onto the topic of what does it look like as far as why are these shootings occurring and coming from his perspective he said man it's a bunch of little things it's being told you're nothing growing up it's being not accepted growing up it's being bullied at school and all these little things he goes it's not the shootings he goes it's not the guy having a gun and pulling the trigger He's like, yeah, that's what we see on the news, but there's years of things building to that point. From when you're a little guy to seeing it every day, to being in a household where mom and dad are in and out and drug use and is going on. And he goes, it's all that. And it finally pushes you to the point, a breaking point. And he goes, do people actually want to kill? He goes, I, you know, coming from my mindset and my history, I don't, I don't believe so. And so we had this great talk and it really brought in a perspective that I had never really heard from the horse's mouth as far as identifying factor that he believed to cause a lot of this gang violence that we see. Yeah. You know, I, I see it as a police officer, you know, as, as much as you're wearing a suit, people hate you for that. And there's a lot of anger towards that. Yeah. But once you actually get to talk to people on a, on a human level and kind of break that gap down and say what, what's going on and, and understanding that there's so much more behind that generational yeah. things that have happened and everything else that have led to that point. So I think that they go hand in hand that, you know, a lot of times it's not just these breaking points, but it's so much more to that. Do you think that experience that you had, the knowledge you obtained, is well known throughout law enforcement about those little things from being told you're nothing? And sort of, I guess where I'm getting at is, do you think if we had more of that information, that we would have more empathy from not just law enforcement here in Los Angeles, but across the country? I, I would say probably not. It, because we're dealing, we're out there to um, prevent and, and, and stop essentially criminal activity. And so we really have to deal with that after fact or beforehand fact if somebody has been shot or we can prevent that by getting a gun off the street. And so in those moments, empathy is not necessarily something that, you know, when it, while doing an investigation that is going to change the way that we do things. However, I would say that day-to-day -day interactions, when you stop a good person, you do have an impact an ability to speak life into somebody. And that's really where I think what you're addressing as far as empathy, but having more officers that are taking opportunities to speak life into people and to call forth their identity as far as what they're capable of as a person. And oftentimes, I 
get these great opportunities to speak to someone that you that maybe has created a violent act and and i can say you know what the decisions that you made don't define who you are right and so we get these times and these very i guess intimate times to be able to speak life into people if you choose to take hold of that stephen porch talks about this neuroception where there is a change that happens developmentally that's somewhat internal it's, un- it's an unconscious process right and it allows us to distinguish safe places people and environment and it's influenced in terms of who you are and who, who raised you but you take that concept right and I've been playing around with this you take that concept and you use it to analyze law enforcement behavior, right? If we're, if we're going into that direction. And what happens after a period of time, they develop a faulty neuroception where their ability to distinguish what's safe and who's safe becomes altered. And when that happens, you get this maladaptive behavior. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is the exposure to trauma. We know as mental health professionals, when you're working with trauma cases after trauma cases after trauma cases, your sense of safety and security changes as well. Same thing I've, I've seen with police officers. It's parallel to what I see with military police. And so the idea that, you know, you need a break is not in your vocabulary. You armor up. You man up, you go and do what you have to do, but your cognitive set has changed from when you started. Working in the South LA, going to homicide scenes more frequently than most would, I definitely have become numb to the idea of violence and shootings and seeing death. With that said, people growing up in South LA and the level of violence that they're used to, they're used to seeing people get shot. They're used to that to where, you know, I was born and raised in the rural city so if I ever saw that as a kid that would be extremely shocking so over time everything all these things that were introduced to begin breaking down our level is that is that sort of dangerous though that to I guess even broach when we talk about brutalization and victimization police shootings um, officer drawing a firearm on an unarmed person of color is there a danger in discuss not discussing but is there a danger in giving this a lot of credit, especially when we're talking about when the officer is being brought up for charges. Now, because that, because that, the reason I say this I is because I'm thinking this. about I'm thinking about the 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 um, the implications in uh, because we've seen these sort of implications before. The kid who broke the law and took his vehicle, his mother's vehicle and escaped. And he said it was because he was rich and he was prone to acting in such a way due to his upbringing and then and doctors came in and talked about the neurology of how his brain had changed yeah, yeah. due to have because of privilege right exactly. are we s- sort of stepping into an area that could be potentially dangerous i, I hear where you're going with this and, and i want to clarify what i'm saying i'm saying that potentially gives a, a neuroscience explanation in terms of of white cops shooting brown and black people. But what I'm also saying is that money has a lot to do with it. If you take this neuroceptive theory and also add the concept of racism, because we are products of our environment, that has a lot to do with it as well, coupled 
with policy. Now, what happens in a lot of these cases, police officers will say, I feared my life. I feared that my life was in danger. Now, that attaches directly to the neuroceptive piece. The other part of this is the blue blood culture. If he and I are partners, and we've been partners for a while, part of this culture is to support one another, right? You're not going to tell on your partner, and your partner's not going to tell on you. That's another intervention where you get other cops to stand up and say, no, that's not really what happened that was wrong. Now, some would say that's a far galaxy of the wish, right? Because now you still got to go out on the street. You still have to have somebody have your back. That's real. That's real. I'm not coming up with an excuse for it. But what I'm saying is that's another piece of the puzzle that has to be included in the inter in the intervention. I totally understand. I guess where I'm coming from is the fact that we all know that science trumps some of the mamby pamby looks at the way people describe race, the mm-hmm. study of race, mm-hmm. the study of economics. When you introduce science into a courtroom, it can be easily manipulated yeah. to overlook all these other factors. When we were speaking of I felt like my life was in danger, right? You can feel that way and still be held accountable. What happens quite often in the courtroom, that has been the argument that the police officer felt like their life was in danger. He or she may have believed that their life was in danger, but there still needs to be a sense of accountability for that. And it can go both ways. An analysis of why you felt that way and looking at is there trauma related to that, but also being accountable. Well, there was nothing to show where your life would have been threatened. So this is a faulty circuit. And so for some reason, and my guess again will be money and politics, we haven't taken it beyond that. It's like, all right, you felt like your life was in danger, case dismissed, and nobody's been held accountable. So that is a fuse that is still burning, and it's going to build up and build up and build up. Now, we can look at institutional racism and individual racism, and you really can't look at individual racism without including institutional racism because that is part of the foundation of America. Yeah, I would like to yeah talk to that point as far as uh, uh, the idea of um, fear for my life. When we see individuals in our line of profession that do make a clear, outright, poor decision, you know, and unfortunately either take somebody's life and or win somebody, that there needs to be more of a sense of accountability in regards to us as a department that we keep it professional. And I think that that holds respect as far as if we're able to be able to hold ourselves to that standard and others to that standard. We can't hide behind this idea of, oh, I was in fear for my life. And that's a, that's a tough one because it, until it somebody's been in that specific situation, it's really hard for them to speak to it. And you're talking about culture, right? Right. And you have to also change the culture of the police department. And we've had discussions in our class, in the clinical practice classes for the military, the isms that are part of the military culture, right? Well, can we change the military culture? Well, the culture works. You know, we want a certain amount of narcissism. We don't want our, our fighter jets going out saying, like, you know, I think I can do this, right? You have to have a certain mm-hmm. sense of narcissism, right. a certain sense of confidence, and the military's overall job 
is protection and to kill when they, we train them to kill. The police, we don't necessarily we train them to kill, but you do train them to keep themselves and their partners alive, right? Can you still do that and change the culture? Well, then that seems like a, there's a disconnect then going on because one moment you guys are mentioning the idea of what police are trained to do, but then on the other hand, you have people touting on, on within the media saying police need to have more sensitivity training. But there seems to be a disconnect within the public discourse around what is the motive operandi of a police officer. It seems as if there is this... But sensitivity training has nothing to do well, with... Well, I get... That's culture. what I'm saying. What yeah. I'm saying... Let's take blue culture out. Okay. But it's still the idea that people are saying that the idea that police officers need to be more empathetic. They need to train around empathy. They need to be trained around this. How do we bridge that disconnect to let people know in the community, this is what a police officer does. This is what they do. This is what they're trained to do. So what you're asking for is won't work. But we can do at the same time, as you mentioned, the, the blue wall, things of that sort, ideas of racism, the ideas of the concepts around the brain. We can work with that. But the other, we need to be honest with people, don't you think? Absolutely. And the culture that African-Americans have toward police are different than the culture that white Americans have, right? right? And so our culture tells us, well, you know, they're really not our friends. And call the police. No, I'm not calling the police. Oh, absolutely not. You know, we'll deal with this our way. Whereas maybe as a white female, hello, police officer, help me. You know? Okay, but this, but, but, but again, these are two different cultures but, coupled with their culture. But again, they you, come from somewhere. But again, you guys are saying something else. You're backtracking. Because let me let me let me let me lay it out. Let me let me lay it out for you, sister. All right. So you say that here's the motive operandi of a police officer. They're trained to do X. Mm -hmm. But we also have history in there where people of color have been historically mistreated. Mm -hmm. And there's a history with certain police departments around the country which have shown connections with the Klan and things of that sort. So if we know this have this knowledge. Aren't we responsible for training police officers around this, around what black people go through, around their experience, around the history of interactions with people of color in law enforcement, why they don't call, why they may run? Now, that's I see that as a little different than diversity. Why, how how and so? Then my question would be, and then what would you expect them to to do with that. I'm not. I'm just I'm, no, I'm saying listening to what you guys are mentioning. I'm throwing generic, it all back. generic you. So okay. in my head, and I'll, I'll, I'll see what you think. So in my head, some white officers would say, my goodness, I wasn't really aware of that, and maybe try and adjust. Because they're not would a they? homogenous group. Right. Right, the police officers. And then some will say, well, that's right. That's the way it should be. I guess what I'm saying, there's no single fix, mm. right? There is no single fix. Are you saying it's complex? I'm saying it's complex. Oh, okay. Knowing the history and knowing that, you know, I wasn't born and raised in Los Angeles, and so the complexities of the LAPD and the environments that have been adapted and have had to adapt with the department, um, there's a lot there. And I've learned in my time on bits and pieces and working in South LA and hearing stories and understanding that. But does at the end of the day, does it change the way that I have to, and I have to do my job? And it, it doesn't. And, and being, being educated is, is so critical, but at the same time, I have a job to do. 
And where I stand is I can't let my past predecessors be something that I have to now change my daily practice of, of second guessing myself because this happened to somebody in the past. And that's the hard thing is because there is a level of, I think, empathy and understanding that we as maybe as a white officer in primarily black communities that I have to be, have compassion for and an understanding. But at the end of the day, if somebody's running from me and there's a crime that's been committed or I can prevent a crime from occurring, I'm going to do my job, even knowing what may have happened in the past. And to address the point before real quickly, as far as the two different policing styles of we have militant idealistics and we have a more compassionate social work. And, and, and that's something I could say I'm battling. And that's a tough one. Eternal conflict. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, going out in a social work mindset, I'm going to get myself hurt. Mm-hmm. And there's a level of confidence and a level of protection that I have to have mentally mm-hmm. going out in dealing with these harsh areas and stuff that I have to be on my game and I have to be ready because some could be going smoothly, then all of a sudden things turn. When I thought, and you look at statistical research as far as officers getting hurt and or killed, they oftentimes, these situations were so fluid and they're obvious and more times than not, everything was going just as it would any other time. And then things took a turn. Mm. And so if I'm not on a level of, um, I guess, hypervigilance, great word, you know, that more of a militant mindset, you know, and so, and that's a tough one because I'm trying to, trying to do my best to be what the community wants me to be as more of a social worker. Hello to everybody, kindness, mm. compassion, all that. And, but also learning to walk that line of, I'm also knowing that, hey, if you pull a gun right now, I'm going to have to put a bullet in you. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough one. Well, I wish in an ideal world that there were, that, like, there were two levels of policing, more militant, technical operating procedures, you have to follow those, and then a community group of cops. And we have that in L.A., but we don't have enough of it, hmm. where they're going out and trying to build bridges that have been burnt or broken as opposed to not having it at, at, at all. Okay. If, if that if that makes sense. It does. But there, there's not enough resources to do it. You know, another ideal world would be show of force where you're not necessarily using weapon, but you know, you've got other tools. Military quite often would use military. It decreased the likelihood of a violent or negative outcome. And really all they would have to do is just be present. Let me ask uh, Officer Silva, how do you feel the military culture has influenced our sense of defense, our sense of arming our police officers to go into certain communities with certain armament or uh, weaponry? Do you think the military culture has played a part in influencing the behavior of police officers in urban communities? I would say absolutely. It does. In the, in the extent of the, the job is vastly different. In one sense, yet close at home and others. Some of the best officers that I've worked with alongside are uh, prior military veterans and or have had uh, multiple deployments, combat deployments, and uh, some of the most solid individuals as far as the way that they're able to handle themselves under stress. Uh, the, the way that they know themselves unlike any other person uh, because they were faced with a series of events that have led them to a point where they know the kind of their breaking point. So I've seen that perspective. I also have seen some that... Um, unfortunately, have maybe had some of their personality stripped from them due to a level of behaviors that they've had to be introduced to, um, and that's kind of taken away some of their personality aspects. Be about you know using effective communication, 
so I'd like to say that I've seen it on both scales, um, but on a larger grand scale, I think that more so than anything with new age of policing, the social work aspects behind what we do has influenced it more so. And that's the way that we're leaning towards. I can only speak to the Los Angeles. In the military. Absolutely. Because, you know, you look back and in in the history of law enforcement has kind of developed out of this militant mindset. And it's been like that for a lot of years. And, And with the integration of body cameras and everything else that I would say in the past, what, probably the past eight years. I mean, that's really shifted. But what I hear from counterparts as far as that goes is that's kind of the new wave that's coming in, which there's obviously a lot of kickback in some ways, but there is a less newer generation. We have an understanding that this is where we're heading. And so I think it has played a larger role than it is currently. I guess because the reason I find it interesting, the whole idea of militarization is that we see in places like Chicago, which Chicago's one area, but let's say, for example, Baltimore with the sensors that can detect gunshots or uh, the idea or the note, the number of cameras that they have, the increased use of uh, armored vehicles and the advancement in technology with, with the okay. rifles sure. in sure. such small communities yep. that all of this money is being pushed and you have the military who's getting rid of old equipment gotcha. and okay. pushing it I toward yeah. the police and the police are, are buying it. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, has that availability to all of these new weapons Mm -hmm. influence the sort of interaction with the community i would say on a large scale no because Mm -hmm. i mean is is that having better equipment in regards to being able to do Mm -hmm. our job more safely i think is always a plus and now i I know that there's a lot of kickback as far as bear cats and things like this these these vehicles and i I could understand it from maybe more of a fiscal perspective as mm-hmm. far as, okay, what are we spending our money on? But as far as concerning the psychology or mindset behind us officers and receiving maybe equipment that might look a little bit more harsh, uh, such as rifles and things like this, um, it doesn't change the way that we police on a day-to-day scale. How has the media and its portrayal of gun violence um, added to or taken away from the discussion? Added more fuel than it should or turning a blind eye to issues of concern that should draw attention, but they don't give it attention. Listen to the news, uh, but don't stop there. Go out and do your own research. Everybody has access to at least Google and other search engines to kind of better understand for themselves and not just be an empty jar and people are just, you know, feeding you information that may not necessarily be accurate or has an underlying political agenda. What do you think, officer? Because because we you, yeah. you know we get cases such as, for example, yeah. Chicago, with the seventy five that were killed over the weekend, mm-hmm. forty seven out of that number were killed were shot within seven hour period and on Sunday alone. Mm-hmm. But I only saw that in the Chicago Tribune. And it's on a specific side of Chicago. Right, Chicago south side of Chicago. Is really right. big, right? Yeah. Southwest, northeast, right. and so. It's it's concentrated in a particular area. And so the question is not how many people got shot. It's why. Why are all these things happening? And having teams go out there and see what's going on in the environment that would precipitate this. Well, how does we're the media not, play into this? How do they... Well, that's the kind of stuff they should be re- re- reporting. Where, where, Where is the CDC? You know, where is the National Institute of Mental Health? And we have children who are dying, innocent children, a lot more innocent, have nothing to do with gang violence or drug, are dying. And 
where are we and where's the media? It's is that people are absent in this discussion unless it occurs in certain neighborhoods and garners attention. What do you, th- right, what do you right. think, Officer Silva? Yeah, you know, and it, as far as uh, some things that happen in South LA, I'll, you know, be out of case and I'll see if it's on the news. And yeah, it'll maybe never hit, you know, the public attention because there's, there's this idea that there's so much going on in South LA or in Chicago that realistically it's kind of a run of a gamut story kind of a thing that's maybe not going to draw headlines. And why is that not drawing headlines? I think people have a perspective of, well, South LA, of course, you know, this is going on. But it comes to the question again, as far as why have we as a society become okay with uh, letting certain areas have high crime? Why is that socially acceptable? Yeah, why is it? Why is that an expectation that it's going to be that way? What can we do then? We're moving in the, we're in the 21st century. When it comes to gun violence, for those who are voiceless, what should we be doing right now? It's all in regards to the hubbub is is gang violence. And so you look at these shootings and it's all gang related. Now we need to start dissecting gang violence and start looking into that. Now why are kids going into gangs? And it comes back to that question of acceptance, feeling brotherhood, feeling just as I feel like I'm in a brotherhood is whether I'm in the Marine Corps, a fraternity or a police department that I feel a social level, a certain level of acceptance. So now we start looking at, so why are kids wanting to go into these? And it comes down to the idea of who's speaking in their lives, what male figures are there, especially. The individuals that are speaking life for these people are, are lacking. And it comes down to the family and the family life. And, and that's a tough one because it's like, how do you break that down and how do you start changing that? Especially as a police officer, my goal is to reduce crime. And so I'm not a social worker. I, yeah, I have great little moments here and there to speak life into somebody, but as a whole, it's like, that's not my job. But yet I'm trying to curb a symptom. That's one of the root issues. And we're putting out more police officers and all this stuff. But we're dealing with a symptom. We're dealing with a symptom. And people are saying the point of the police and saying, why is this happening? But yet we're dealing with a symptom. I have a cough. My cough's not the problem. The shootings aren't the problem. And yet I'm tasked with the idea that you're supposed to prevent it. We're taking guns off all the time off people. Yet the shootings still occur. Mm -hmm. And so from my limited perspective, start looking at really where these behaviors are coming from. It comes from the household, feeling accepted. And, you know, I just want to add one thing. We as a country, we solve what we want to solve. We resolve what we, we want to resolve. We And with who? And with who? And with who? Injustice. I would like to thank both of you for your contributions. Thank you very much. I would like to end by saying we need to get out there, people. We need to deconstruct this epidemic. We need people on the ground doing community work to the halls of Congress. We need to get out there. As I like to say, don't talk about it, be about it. If you have any questions for the guests on our show or just want to talk further about the issue of gun violence, we'd love to hear from you at listenuppeople at usc.edu and find extended versions of this and all of our episodes at dwarfpec.usc.edu slash listenup. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time.